Welcome to another episode of All Things Mysterious, the podcast where the realms of true crime, the supernatural, and the unexplained converge. I'm your host, Matt. I'm Jordan. Let's dive right in. The Salem Witch Trials, a defining moment in American colonial history began in a small, fictitious community and escalated into a series of events that led to the deaths of 20 people and the imprisonment of many more. Did you say 20? 20. That's it? Yeah, it really wasn't that many, but 20 for back in colonial days was a lot of people, actually. Yeah, it just feels like it should be more. And that's obviously with something that happened so long ago. Those are just the ones that were actually executed. That's fair. There is obviously people that died in prison before they were even executed or even tried. That's true. So 20 is just the kind of the official number, the ones that we know of. The official count, if yeah. you will. Let's start with a little background on Salem. Because one thing that I didn't know until I actually started looking into this, Salem is not the Salem that we know today. Okay. Uh, Salem Village, where this actually happened, was actually known today as Danvers, Massachusetts. Okay. Did not know that. So Salem Village was a rural area on the outskirts of the more prosperous Salem town, which is actually the modern day Salem. So they're right next to each other, basically, but it's not technically the same place. So... Confusing, I know, but there's Salem Town and then Salem Village. All right, fair. Apparently, their naming people weren't very creative back then. Not at all. So the villagers were primarily agrarian, living in stark contrast to the mercantile and somewhat cosmopolitan life of Salem Town. Uh, They were basically just a small farmer kept to themselves. Obviously very religious, which we'll get into that. But Salem Village sought independence from Salem Town because they felt that they were more quiet, near... Let's be honest, they thought they were better than the people in Salem Town. Fair. But they especially wanted their independence from Salem Town... Because of religious matters. They were more religious than the people of Salem Town. And it often led to internal conflicts and a sense of division within the community. In January 19... Or 19. In January 1692... That tracks. I was like 90? Betty Paris and her cousin Abigail Williams began displaying bizarre behaviors, convulsions uncontrollable screams, and claims of being pinched or bitten by unseen forces. Or, as we call it, the start of the Salem Witch Trials. Pinched or bitten? Yeah, by unseen forces. Okie dokie. That's interesting. Now, one thing to keep in mind about this is all the witnesses, and for those that obviously you can't see me, I am Definitely put them, putting those in air quotes. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> were mostly young girls and teenage girls. Ah, interesting. So, 
In an attempt to identify the cause of the girl's afflictions, a concoction known as a witch cake made from rye flour and the girl's urine was fed to a dog. I'm sorry, what? These people are nuts. They mixed rye flour with the girl's urine and then fed it to a dog. Oh, God. I'm so sad that we don't have video of this because of my face. Oh, God. What? They did this because this unconventional method was believed to reveal the perpetrator of witchcraft. And how was that supposed to reveal that? These people are crazy. Come on. I get... Oh, that's so stupid, but okay. I'll be 100% honest right now. I 1,000% think that these people who were involved in this were idiots and were just... Like, I am not on their side at all. No, I believe you, but just... I'm just trying to understand their reasoning behind this. Okay. Okay, don't... This is how this is going to work. Don't focus too much on the witch cake here. (laughs) I'm sure there's more I'm going to focus on later, but okay. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Tiduba. (laughs) Tichubas. Juba. Tiduba. What? How many times do you want to try and say that? A lot. Okay. Tiduba. T-I-T-U-B-A. How would you say that? Tituba? Tituba. I have no idea. Something like that. I am totally going to butcher this name. Tituba. Close enough. Was an enslaved woman in the Paris household. She was among the first to be accused of witchcraft alongside Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Under duress, Tituba. I cannot say that name. Confessed to being a witch, claiming she was coerced by a man who appeared to her. Vivid confession, which included details of signing the devil's book and descriptions of other witches in Salem, exasperated the fears and hysteria already brewing within the village. Her confession marked a significant turning point leading to a wider spread of accusations. Now, with all that being said... There is obviously strong evidence that... I guess coercion? Yeah. Because remember that the the first girl, Betty Paris, was the girl. Her father was the one that owned her. And I feel wrong saying that. It's true, though. Yeah. Then you owned women, yeah. pretty much. It's gross, yeah. but it's the truth of what happened back then it wasn't just women just yeah Yeah. people yeah so but yeah so obviously and the father reverend paris obviously had good reason to and we'll talk about him later definitely not a good person i don't say this often but i really hope that there is a hell just so he could burn in it because he literally forced us to go on just to get what he wanted. The spark of the Salem witch tri- trials can be traced back to the tensions between Salem Village and Salem Town, the mysterious afflictions of two young girls, and the consequential actions and confession of Tidwa. And I think I've said her, said her name three different ways. <laughs> It's like the Dialov Pass episode all over again. It's like you're going to say it differently every single time like I did with their names. <laughs> but it's okay because I understand. Honestly, I 
spent time learning how to say her name and I just totally like just blanked. Yeah. It's fine. I honestly for the life of me can't remember how to say it now. So anyways, these events occurring against a backdrop of social, economic, and religious tensions catalyzed a witch hunt that would leave an indelible mark on the American conscience, serving as a somber reminder of the dangers of hysteria and the importance of due process and rationality in the face of fear and uncertainty. That is an understatement. Yeah. And we'll get more into it later, but yeah, this... Honestly, I've know I know knew a lot about the Salem Witch Trials before I started researching it for this episode. I just forgot how much of the stuff actually pisses me off. There's a lot. Yeah. A lot. A lot of coercion, a lot of yeah, yeah. I'm with you stuff that's just gonna really piss you off. Yeah, there really is. A lot of it was just people didn't like somebody, so they would accuse them of being a witch. Uh, pretty much how it went. As the witchcraft witchcraft accusations in the Salem village grew, the need for formal legal proceedings became apparent. We're going to talk about the establishment of the Court of Order and Terminer. The key figures involved in the trials, notable cases, and the controversial methods of evidence collection that characterize this dark period in colonial history. In response to the growing crisis in May 1692, I keep wanting to say 1962, uh, dyslexia. Yeah, it's definitely not that reason. Uh, God, it's not that reason. Governor William Phipps of Massachusetts Bay Colony established the Court of Order and Terminer, weird name, specifically to hear and decide witchcraft cases. The name of the court derived from Old French means to hear and determine, indicating its authority to process these cases swiftly. The court was composed of a panel of judges with Lieutenant Governor William Sauten serving as the chief magistrate. Its establishment marked the beginning of formal trials for those accused of witchcraft in Salem and surrounding areas. Now think about this for a second. Yeah, it blows my mind that there's formal trials for this. But back then that was such a big thing. They literally basically created a government trial, a government court funded by, I don't know if they really had taxes back then, but basically funded by the people and the government Yeah, to hold people, put them on trial for witchcraft. Separation of church and state was not a thing. No, not in colonial times at all. Uh, but... Shows why we really needed that. Amen. So, so one of the judges of the court of Oyer and Terminus. That's such a weird name to me. It is. It is a weird name. Judge Samuel Sewell later expressed regret for his role in the trials, publicly apologizing for his involvement and participation in the wrongful convictions. Oh, yes. An apology will do. To be fair, at least he apologized for what he did, which is more than what a lot of the people did. Governor William Phipps. The governor who established the court, Phipps played a crucial role in the proceedings. He eventually disbanded the court in October 1690, partly due to growing public outcry and questioning of its legal practices. 
However, the real reason, or at least a reason that people suspected, was the fact that his wife was brought in on suspicion of being a witch. Jordan's over here on her phone not listening. I'm confused. Why? Now I'm thinking. Governor William Phipps' wife was accused of being a witch and was brought in and interrogated. Right. Shortly after that, Governor William Phipps disbanded the court, which had brought her in for questioning. Yeah, because he's now... Now, obviously, his... According to him, the reason why was because of public outcry. Yeah. Sometimes there aren't words. I made a face, but I realized that you guys can't see that. But I made a face, though. Something like, okay, okay, then. So now, the, I guess the villain, the biggest villain in the story, Reverend Samuel Paris. He was the minister of Salem Village. Paris was obviously a central figure in the escalation of the witchcraft crisis. His own daughter and niece were among the first accusers, and his fervent sermons on the presence of evil, evil in Salem fueled the hysteria. One very important thing to remember here is reverends and the church had more power than pretty much the government at the time. They basically were the governing power, even though the government was obviously the governing power, but yeah. the church was the governing yeah. power at that point. And even some people accused him at the time that he was using this to make his power stronger, which he really did. Because this was also a turning point where the church was losing more of its power as the government kind of took hold and started building, taking power, basically taking power away. And Samuel Paris did not like that. I'm sure he didn't. And that's also the rift between Salem Village and Salem Town. Salem Town was more, basically more government-y, government-controlled type thing. Salem Village was more still on the old way of churches running everything. Or the church, I should say. Yeah. They definitely didn't have more than one church. (laughs) Obviously, since it was his daughter and niece were the first accusers, people suspected that he staged the whole thing. Most likely, it's looking like that. And I do not feel bad, but I have no reservation saying that, yes, he totally made this up for his own gain. Signs point to yes. Sorry, not sorry type thing, but yeah, he's a piece of crap. (laughs) Can you tell how much I hate this guy? A lot, but that's fine because most of us do at this point. He just wants a good person. Like, Who puts, you said your daughter and niece through that? Hmm. Like... Just don't, dude. Just don't. Why? Do you not care? Do you not have love for anybody? No. And then, obviously, owning a slave, I think we can all agree, is not right. But then to have your slave basically force her to say that she's a witch and spend time in prison, in jail. Because, mind you, during this whole witch trial, she was in jail the whole time. She was cooperating, so she wasn't executed. In fact, she was one of the last ones released after the trial. She kind of waned out. Yeah, she she survived it, but at what cost? Yeah. Ultimately, she had to. Sure was. 
Well, not only that, but she had to make accusations. So she accused a lot of the people specifically of being witches. Oh. Let's talk about some of the most notable, some of the notable accusations and cases. Bridget Bishop. She was actually the first person to be tried and executed as a witch during the trials. Bishop was known for her flamboyant lifestyle and previous accusations of witchcraft, making her an easy target. Her case set a precedent for the trials, including the reliance on spectral evidence. Oh, that's solid. Yeah, it's super solid evidence. Irrefutable. But don't worry, at, at some point they realized maybe relying on spectral evidence is not the best idea. Shocker, once they stopped relying on spectral evidence, then they no longer were able to get convictions of witches. And Wow, who would have thunk it? Not me. Yeah. Sarah Good was also among the first to be accused. Good was a homeless beggar perceived as socially deviant. Her execution followed shortly after Bishop's, underscoring the trial's focus on marginalized individuals. I know this name. Yeah, Sarah Good. uh, She was actually, I think she was more of the more popular one for some reason. She's the one that even in school I read about. I feel like it's because of her name. The good name, I can't even remember now. I know, especially in colonial times, the good name was pretty, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, powerful or instrumental in the shaping of the cult. It is, and the fact that her name literally is good, and then this happened to her, and it's a juxtaposition, if you will. It sticks with you really well. I feel like it is something that is easy to remember. And I feel like that's another reason why it's taught quite a bit. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Covenant. I have not. It's actually a pretty good movie. You should watch it. Anyways, I'm not going to spoil the movie, but basically Sarah Good was one of the names that they bring up when they're talking about the Salem witch trials back then. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely, I think, the more popular of the notable cases. Next one, Rebecca Nurse. A well-respected member of the community, Nurse's conviction shocked many and demonstrated that no one was beyond suspicion. Her case highlighted the widespread panic and the breakdown of community trust. So let's, you know, she was actually well-respected and liked by the community, but yet she still was arrested and executed. Doesn't matter though. Somebody said she was a witch. Yep. This is it. It was just one of those things where it's no one's safe, and it's so frustrating to me. Especially someone that really likes evidence-based stuff. The fact that I could be like, "Hey, Jordan's a witch," and you would be arrested, most likely convicted, and then killed. Yep. It's just. Stupid to me. <laughs> it's insane because there's not, you can't really prove that. No, you can't. And sorry, we're calls. 
And I'm just going to edit this out later so I can say whatever I want. As long as I don't forget to edit out. Focus, Jordan, focus. <laughs> Be focused? Sure. Get right on that. Methods of ev- evidence collection. This ought to be good. Yeah. And again, quote, evidence. Yes, because there's all sorts of evidence that somebody's a witch back then. Spectral evidence. Looking forward to this. The court allowed spectral evidence where accusers claim that the spirit or specter of the accused appeared to them and caused harm. (laughs) This highly subjective and unverifiable form of evidence played a significant role in the conviction. I wonder why. (laughs) Yep, that's some solid evidence. Witch marks. Examiners looked for physical witch marks on the accused bodies, believed to be where the devil marked his followers. These could be any unusual blemishes or moles. Ah, yes. Hope you don't have a birthmark. (laughs) Or a mole or anything that looks just abnormal. You have freckles. (laughs) Yeah. You got a zit. You're obviously working for the devil. The touch test. The touch test? Oh, God. This ought to be good. Accused witches were asked to touch victims in the throes of a fit. If the fit stopped, it was taken as evidence that the accused was the one who had inflicted the victim through witchcraft. I need to know more about this one because did they make them have a fit first? Did they just suddenly be like, okay, I need you to be in a fit. We're just going to wait for you to be in one. And then, like, how does this work? I honestly... There are so many weird things that happen. Like, how does that work? Honestly, I have a real problem calling this a court in any sense of the form because... It's obviously not at all. They were all judge, jury, and executioner at that point. Every one of them. Every one of them. Because they're just going to make whatever evidence that they want appear. Yeah, it's literally once you're accused, you're basically life is in their hands. Yeah. You have no control over it. If they want you dead, you're going to be dead. Yeah, at that point, even if they have evidence, they're going to make it work in their favor. They don't need to have it. Literally, all they have to do is be like, yeah, they came to me as a specter and hurt me. That's their evidence. So and that's what makes us so frustrated because we're taught, you know, trust the justice system, which... Obviously, nowadays isn't hard to do, but I think we can all agree that the justice system today is way better than this because that was no justice. That was no system at all. Like I said, they were all judge, jury, and executioner. Just boom. Well, you're a witch. Somebody said you were. Can you imagine spilling your coffee on somebody and then next thing you know, you're being arrested and tried as a witch and then executed because you're a witch because that's basically what this is you piss somebody off or somebody doesn't like you and you're basically dead well you'd be screwed i really would (laughs) you'd be really screwed buddy i would probably be the first death honestly but and then you and that's the problem is you get into this hysteria i've got to accuse somebody else before they accuse me so which only make, exasperates the problem to begin with. It just, it's frustrating. As the witch trials progress, the hysteria reaches Zenith. 
deeply affecting the lives of many and leaving a lasting impact on the community. We're going to delve into personal stories that illustrate the human cost of the hysteria, the role of the press in the shaping of public opinion, the tragic case of Giles Corey, and the significance of key testimonies and confessions during the trials. Many of those accused of witchcraft came from a variety of backgrounds, including respected community members like Rebecca Nurse, a grandmother known for her, her piety, and George Burroughs, a former minister of Salem Village. Good. Yeah. Former minister. Parish where Paris couldn't have another minister in town. So the the accusers often young girls claimed to be victims of witchcraft, experiencing fits and spectral visions. Historians have explored various theories for their motiva- motivations, including psychological hysteria, social pressures, and economic or familial grievances. Obviously, we're not going to know why the girls did it, and it wasn't just the girls. Obviously. I think the daughter and the niece and Chichibua was Reverend Prayer's playing puppet master on that one. Yeah, for his own power and greed. But there was other girls who came forward and accused people and essentially killed people. Because ultimately that's what these girls did is murder people. Yeah, that's what came out of it. They just used the this kangaroo court as a murder weapon. Yeah, they knew that's what was going to come out of it. Yeah. It's not like they just thought somebody was just going to get a quick slap on the wrist. No, they knew this was going to happen. Pamphlets and accounts of the trials circulated widely, influenced public opinion both within the colony and in England. Works like Cotton Mather's Wonders of the Invisible World defended the trials, while others such as Robert Caliph's More Wonders of the Invisible World criticized the proceedings and the use of spectral evidence. The press played a crucial role in shaping contemporary and historical perceptions of the witch trials, with sensational accounts contributing to the spread of hysteria and later later providing a record of the events for posterity. The case of Giles Corey. That just sounds so backwards. What? The name. Giles Corey? Yes. Yeah, really does. Giles Corey, accused of witchcraft, refused to enter a plea. To compel him to plead, authorities subjected him to pressing, a form of torture where heavy stones were placed upon his chest over several days. Corey's last words, more weight, have become emblematic of of resistance against unjust authority. His death by pressing is the only known instance of such punishment in American colonial history and highlighted the extreme measures taken during the witch trials. Honestly, that sucks, but also, like, bravo. Oh, yeah. Bravo. And honestly, that's one thing that, like, shocked me almost a little bit was, you know, because in school, it was, you know, it always seemed like it was just women who were accused of witchcraft. Yeah, that's always what I got too, but apparently it's men. Yes. Honestly, this is going to sound bad, but kind of makes me happy. Don't, because like 14 of the murders were women, and only six were like, only six, I think, were guys. But that's not 100% women. Not 100%. Yeah. And obviously, I could be off Very on the number, skewed, but yeah. But not 
definitely a majority were women. So the trials relied heavily on spectral evidence where accusers claimed that the specter or apparition of the accused had harmed them. This type of evidence, though intangible and highly subjective, was considered valid and contributed significantly to the convictions. Some accused witches, like Tidjabwa, I think I've said her name different every single time. I think you have, but it's fine. Uh, you all know who you're yeah. talking about, at least. Confessed to witchcraft, often providing detailed and fantastical, fantasy, fantasy accounts of their dealings of the dev- with the devil. But these confessions, whether genuine or coerced, added legitimacy to the hysteria. And I think it's safe to say that she was coerced, most likely by Reverend Paris. Like I said, I'm not ashamed, and I'll stand by that, that she was definitely coerced by Reverend Paris, because he's a piece of crap. At the very least, was it her you said that signed, or was it, no, somebody else signed the devil's book, or something like that, the very first one? Yeah, she was the one that supposedly, or that's, the devil's mark was what they were looking for, and that was supposed to be, uh, Showing that they signed the devil's book or something. I don't know. It's all nonsense. Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. Oh. The aftermath of the Salem witch trials marked a period of reflection, legal reform, and attempts at restitution for the grave injustices that occurred. Good. Yeah. In, obviously, the, the state of Massachusetts, which obviously at the time wasn't a thing, they still actually took responsibility and I think in the 60s they created like a memorial for all the victims which was actually really nice that is really cool and obviously this was way before Massachusetts even a thing Mm -hmm. before the United States but the fact that they kind of said hey we're gonna do this we're gonna make amends for all the wrongs that we acknowledge we did yeah I kind of thought that was pretty cool so in October 19, or God dang it, I keep doing that. In October 1692, <laughs> Governor Fitz, influenced by growing quit criticism and the intervention of Massachusetts General Court, ordered the dissol- dissolution of the Court of Order and Terminer. The court's reliance on spectral evidence and the increasing number of accusations, including against people of high standing, his wife, raised doubts about its proceedings. So now the establishment of the Superior Court of Judicature, that's even harder to say. I'm impressed with it uh, right now. It was created in its place, the Superior Court of Judicature. Judicature. Was established in January 1693. This new court was tasked with hearing the remaining witchcraft cases but was instructed not to consider spectral evidence as a valid, valid basis for conviction. About freaking time. Yeah. So in other words, they, I basically after this happened, there was no more convictions. Surprise. Everyone could see that coming, to be fair. Um, yeah, because pretending you saw somebody, yeah, that's, that's not evidence. Increase Mather, his actual name. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a real name, but I'll yeah. cool, go for it. A prominent clergyman and the president of Harvard College played a significant role in the shift in public opinion. In his work, cases of conscience 
concerning evil spirits, Mather argued against the use of spectral evidence and emphasized the importance of more tangible proof in trials, cautioning against the risk of executing innocent people. Uh, Mather's stance, along with the other clerical voices, contributed to a broader skepticism towards the witch trials and the methods used to convict the accused, leading to more cautious approach in subsequent trials. First time I could probably say this, but uh, an actual clergyman who is being smart. I'm impressed. Uh, at least in this time frame. Uh, yeah, he was like the voice of reason. There's a first time for everything? Yeah. So it's, it's nice when you start hearing about people who actually be like, hey guys, this seems stupid. What I'm really impressed about is that somebody actually went with him and agreed with yeah, and there was a lot of people actually which stood against, stood with them and, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's honestly more impressive than anything else to me, oh, yeah. is that he said something and stood up and everybody else was like, you know what? And the fact that he wasn't murdered. Yeah, exactly, that he wasn't, that somebody else wasn't like, you're a witch. Yeah. And it was okay from there. That surprises me more than anything, but that's great. Under the Superior Court of Judicature, many of the remaining accused have, were acquitted or received pardons. The shift away from spectral evidence and the growing public concern about the justice of the trials contributed to the end of the witch hunt. Surprise. Uh, by May 1693, all those imprisoned on witchcraft charges had been released, making, marking the official end of the witch trial saga. This release represented a turning point as the colony began to recover from the hysteria that had gripped it. Now, the 1711 Act that cleared the names of some of the accused. That's good. Some of the accused. Some. It's all of them, but you know what? We'll take a little bit of it. Yeah. So in 1711, the Massachusetts General Court passed an act that formally cleared the names of 22 people who had been convicted during the witch trials. The act also granted a sum of 600 pounds to be distributed among the heirs of the accused as restitution for the suffering and financial ruin caused by the trials. Which 1711... Looks like 600 pounds. I forgot what it was, but weird money. Yeah. Because technically we still had English money back then. We did. We didn't go to... I had to be a lot of money then. then. I'm sure it would have been a lot of money back then. This act of restitution was significant acknowledgement by the colony's leadership of the grave injustices committed by and represented in an attempt to make amends to the affected families. It was a critical step towards healing for the community's wounds though the scars of the trials would linger for generations. Honestly. And I think I made myself perfectly clear on this one. This whole thing just pisses me off to no end. I I can't stress that enough. The fact that someone could accuse you of being a witch, no evidence whatsoever, but you say that you have evidence, and then that takes as evidence, and then you're executed. That's all it takes. I mean... You're a witch. Yeah. And then I'll take... Accusing you, so... Yep. And I'm going to be extra. And that's the really sad part about this. They don't even know where these people were buried at. Like, where the monument, the memorial, is where they think that they were buried. But they really don't know because they were all buried in unmarked graves. 
Which I think is the worst part about this. Like That is, because you can't even justice by them. Yeah. Let, let's forget. Let's say for a second that they were actually witches, right? But burying them in a marked grave, it wouldn't be for them. It'd be for their family. Because you got to, even if they were witches, let's say they chose to be, whatever. Their family still needs to grieve. Yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily for them. It's for their family. Yeah. To be able to say goodbye, to visit them, to have that moment. And that's like the probably the part that pissed me off the most. Because not only were the family the families of these people had their loved ones stolen from them and murdered by the court. But they, with justice though, they were witches. Yeah. But then they couldn't even properly grieve. No. It was horribly unjust, every single bit of it. Oh, yeah. Even if they were witches, it was unjust. Yeah, 100%. But I'm just saying, even if they were witches, which obviously they weren't, why would you punish the family? Like, even now when people are executed by the state, they're still given proper burials. And it shouldn't be any other way. I agree. It's horribly inhumane in every aspect. Nothing, every part of this was inhumane. Oh, yeah. And the fact that they, that's what just, I can't get my head wrapped around is the fact that they did this on purpose. They not only murdered these people, but then they punished their families. Yeah, they did that on purpose. It wasn't an accident. They did it on purpose. And I just don't understand how people, even in hysteria, how people could be so cruel. Like, it just boggles my mind. They were different times. Yeah, I get that. Which is not any sort of excuse yeah. because it's not. But they were very different times and very different mindsets than what we believe in now. Obviously. And as horrible as that is, I think that people's mindsets were very different. And thankfully, we have, knock on wood, grown as people since then, at least a little bit. And... That is still terrible, though. It's just not the way that you treat people. And yeah. thankfully, like you said earlier, they they did somewhat apologize. They yeah. tried to make some amends for it, but that's still not. You can't take that back. You can't make lives come back after you've ended them. And for the most part, the first time in 1711, obviously, a lot of the families were still alive. The state of Massachusetts during their on the 1960s or whenever it actually was, I forgot the date, but. Obviously, none of the families were really alive, at least none of the immediate families. Obviously, their great-grandparents or whatever. But, and then obviously, you've got the families that ended a whole bloodline. That's one thing I remember at the Stair Good was that ended the good bloodline. Yeah, and that's not fair for her bloodline. What's, you ended an entire family at that point. That's not something, you can't undo that. I'm drawing a blank, but I know the good family was important in the, at least in the start of the colonies, maybe. I just can't remember why. Who knows? I don't know. That's going to drive me nuts now. More research when I get. I'm not good at history. I like history. I really do. But the Salem Witch Trials is one thing that kind of really pisses me off more than it should. No, it really should piss you. Yeah. There's been a lot of injustices and a lot of stuff that's happened. Bad stuff even after the United States formed, and even before that in the world. I don't know, it's just, 
for me, it's kind of, it's just the fact that this court, you know, basically murders people for no reason and it, it all in the name of justice, but it was the farthest thing from justice. And there was absolutely no justice. No. There was no justice to be had mm. in this case at all. None. They let fear motivate them. They let fear decide who lived and died. And it's just fear. It was power. Yeah. A lot of, obviously for Reverend Paris, the POS, he was in it for power. And ultimately it backfired on him because after this, the church started losing more power. So he lost power. It had the opposite effect that he wanted. But obviously during the witch trials, it, his power increased 20-fold. He probably became the most powerful person in, probably in the freaking United States colony or whatever you want. Probably, North America. Boy, thankfully that was... Short-lived. Short-lived. Remembering the Salem witch trials is crucial for several reasons. Firstly, they served as, serve as a historical lesson on the dangers of allowing fear, superstition, and hysteria to override rational thought and justice. The trials highlight the consequences of societal divisions, the perils of scapegoating, and the importance of critical thinking and due process in the face of accusations. Secondly, the Salem Witch Trials remind us of the human capacity for both injustice and redemption, the community's later actions to rectify in some measure the wrong wrongs done, teach us about the importance of acknowledging mistakes and working towards re restitution and reconciliation. Lastly, the trials are a testament to the complexities of human nature and society. They encourage us to reflect on how fear and uncertainty can drive communities apart, but also on the resilience of individuals and societies to overcome their darkest moments through reflection, reform, and a commitment to justice. But basically, obviously, just people, be nice to everybody. Don't call people witches. Even though I know Jordan probably is one, but definitely don't execute her because then this would suck. <laughs> it would just be me talking by myself. You can't execute me because I can't tell you how to pronounce words. Yeah. That would be I'm the, not here. That would be the bad part is... Or if in reality, you just make fun of me every time I say a word wrong. So that's how I know I say a word wrong. That's also fair. The equipment would work a lot better if I wasn't here, though. That is true. Probably would never have technical difficulties again. <laughs> There's a lot to think about there. Thank you for joining us on this journey through all things mysterious. If you've enjoyed uncovering these mysteries with us, please show your support by liking, subscribing, and following us on your favorite listening platform. For more content and ways to stay connected, don't forget to check out our links in the description below. As always, we keep you guessing, 